So, a lot has happened since we last met here. A lot of good things, but there's also a lot of big things that are not, don't feel so good. And the depth of our understanding of the love of Jesus is tested when, not when times and sailing is smooth, but when we go through things that we've been going through over the last month or two. And it really proves whether our discipleship is just a bunch of words or if it actually has grown roots down into our soul and is, is part of who we are. In our time meeting together and in the curriculum of the groups, they're really all pointed towards one main goal, which I believe is the main goal of Christian discipleship, and that is to learn to love like Jesus loved. And that's a really th easy thing for us to say, but it's not an easy thing for us to learn because we actually need to learn it. It doesn't just happen. We don't automatically become more like Jesus just because we become a Christian and start going to church. There's actually work to do. Right? There's training, there's learning, there's sharing, there's being vulnerable, but there's also skills. So in the previous semester, half of our time together, we've, we've learned three big skills, okay? We learned about the importance of joy, the importance of our faces shining on each other, and also learning how to receive God's face shining on us. This is a wonderful song we just listened to, but it's always also really hard to actually believe it and actually experience it. And I would even say you can't experience it by just trying. You need to actually practice it. And that's the second skill is not just joy, but gratitude. When we, build, when we practice gratitude with God, we're actually training the circuits of our flesh. We're training our bodies to receive the glowing face of God, his delight. So we've been doing practices with, with both quieting ourselves too, because sometimes we can't calm ourselves down, and if we can't calm ourselves down, we can't sense God's face shining on us because there's too much stuff going on, right? And then we talked about relational circuits, which just happens what happens when we just can't feel God's presence. Or we don't even really wanna love people like Jesus. I just don't feel like it right now. Honestly, I just wish you would all go away. That's what we feel sometimes, right? What happens when we feel like that? And that can even be with the person we love, my wife. I just kinda wish she would go away. There's probably nobody here married that hasn't felt that at least once. And we learn that our brain actually gives us signals when something has switched off, and in that case, something has switched off. We call it our relational circuits. It's really our relational brain that's kind of gone down. And if you remember last time we were together, we actually practiced getting our relational brain back on. So there's some steps. And I encourage you to go back from the previous times we were together and, and pr keep practicing those. So since the last time I uh, was up here, raise your hand if you had a time in the last month or two where you felt your relational circuits had gone off. Raise your hand. Yep. Pretty common. Definitely happened to me a few times. 
We also studied when our relational circuits go off, we can very easily go into a thing called enemy mode, which is where people start feeling more like enemies than, they, than, than people that we're supposed to connect to and love. Okay? Now, when our relational circuits, our relational brain goes off, we're not automatically going into enemy mode. But if you stay in that state very long, you're going to pretty quick, quickly go into one of the enemy modes where you're going to treat people like enemies. That's why it's really important to notice when that happens and to get our relational brain back on and even tell a person, hey, you know, this is a pretty intense conversation. Let's take a little time out. I think I need to, I need to get myself together and then let's talk again in five minutes or let's talk again tomorrow or whatever you think you need. That's actually a very wise thing to say. When we're doing relationally difficult things, relationally heavy lifting, pushing through is usually a bad idea when you think you're, when your brain seems to be going offline. Because the part of our brain that goes offline is the relational part. So if you're having an intense re relational conversation and your relational brain goes down, you pushing through is like you really trying to see something with your eyes closed. You know, if your eyes are closed, instead you better concentrate on getting your eyes back open before you do anything else, right? Well, relationally speaking, if you're having a relationally intense conversation and you feel your relational circuits go off, call a timeout and get them back on. And don't, don't resume the intense relational event until you know you get your, your relational circuits back on. So those are kind of the skills we've been practicing. Um, so let's, let's practice a few ourselves. So for quiet, let's take all a, a real big deep breath in and out, and I'm talking like five seconds in and five seconds out, okay? Let's all go do it together. Feels good, doesn't it? They call this like a cleansing breath, for good reason. It feels like a cleanse. Now let's try the tapping, if you remember. If you're new, just kind of copy. This is weird, by the way. We realize this is weird, but copy the people around you. This help, actually helps calm your nervous system down. But we tap on a big inhale, and then we massage on the exhale. And I like to say Psalm 55, 6, whenever I'm afraid, I trust in you, O Lord. Now let's try that again. Whenever I'm afraid, I will trust in you, O Lord. Let's do it again. Whenever I'm afraid, I will trust in you, O Lord. The third quieting one is the Mora reflex. It's the baby startle reflex. It's a way of, it's, what we're kind of doing is we're kind of exciting a little bit our system and then we're calming it. And when we practice these skills, you can practice these at home when nobody's seeing, looking at you because they're kind of weird. But as you excite yourself and then calm yourself, you're actually training yourself to calm big emotions. So these are things we need to do away from an intense and highly emotional event. We need to do it just daily for a while so that when you get in the, in the, in the difficult time where you know you need to calm yourself down, you've done it a hundred times already and, and you have some muscle memory and you've actually kind of created pathways that your brain knows how to do that. You don't want to learn things in the intense event because normally we can't function very well, right? 
So let's do the last one, which is the Mora reflex. So that's, it's kind of the baby startle reflex, and it goes like this. We go, <gasps> when I'm afraid, I will trust in you, O Lord. So again, it's a big inhale and an exhale. All of these have an inhale and an exhale, but this one kind of ramps up and excites using this Mora reflex, it's called, and then we calm ourselves again. Okay, so let's do that together. <gasps> when I'm afraid, I will trust in you, O Lord. Again, <gasps> when I am afraid, I will trust in you, O Lord. So that calms us down, and from a kind of a neurological standpoint, you're actually draining um, the cortisol from your blood, which is the stress hormone, and then you're producing serotonin, which is kind of the calm, well-being hormone. And you can actually train yourself to produce serotonin on demand. Meaning, when you're up here ramped up, you can calm yourself. And is there anyone here who doesn't want that in daily life? I've yet to meet a person who doesn't want to be able to do that, okay? So do these. Do these on a regular basis. I do these every morning. I do three minutes of quieting. I run through all these and then I just sit for the rest of the three minutes. I set a three minute timer. Do that every single morning. And so I'm just training over and over again my system how to get excited and then calm. And then the, then the other thing I do is I do five minutes of gratitude right after I do the calming exercises, okay? So think of something you're grat grateful for. It can be a memory you have if you've started your memory list or if you're just new here. Just think of something you're, you appreciate or you're grateful for in the last day or two. And it can really be anything, you know, it can be, you know, a friend dropping by or good news from your job or something kind a person you love did for you or a beautiful sunset. Did anybody see the sunset last night? It was just gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. It can be something as simple as a good meal or a good cup of coffee, okay? So I'll give you a few seconds to think of a memory and then we'll do some gratitude together, Okay. Okay, you got something? So in that memory now, let's just go back and, and relive that memory. Um, Lindsay used the word soak, that's a good word. You know, it's kind of like a jacuzzi, it's a great gratitude jacuzzi with a good memory. Go back to that memory, whether it happened yesterday or this morning or whether it happened five years ago, doesn't matter. And let's just soak in it for about a minute together, okay? And, and again, you're not thinking about the memory, you're actually kind of reliving it and re-experiencing it and thinking, you know, what are you feeling in your body? How are you experiencing God in it? And just kind of receiving and enjoying and just sitting and soaking, okay? So let's soak together for a minute.
So how'd that feel? Anybody want to tell us, what did you feel in your body as you went back and soaked in your memory? Do you, you remember feeling anything specifically kind of in your body as you went back? Anyone? Calming, yeah. Yes. Warm. Now, it's important that we listen to our bodies because our body is actually very connected to this relational brain, which is the the RC circuits, the right brain that we're we're trying to notice when it goes off. So when our relational brain kind of goes down on us, we, we, in a sense, lose lose our, our strong connection with our body. So a lot of times when I'll be doing my gratitude, sometimes I won't feel anything in my body. So it doesn't feel like it goes anywhere or it's very deep and then I'll realize, I don't think my brain's doing very well right now. So that's a good signal. When you can't feel much in your body when you're doing a gratitude, that's a sign to to maybe go through the steps on the back of the, the relational circuits worksheet and work through those four steps and try to get yourself back online. My relational circuits went off for almost a good week and I couldn't get them back on. I'm gonna talk about that in a sec. It's pretty common and it's something we need to work through. So, so again, we have quiet and then we have joy and gratitude and then we have relational circuits. Those are the, three, the big skills we've learned so far. They're kind of foundational skills for learning to love others like Jesus loves. If we can't quiet ourselves, we can't love people very well. If, we, if our joy tank is low, we can't really do anything very well, much less love someone like Jesus loved. And if our relational brain is off or not doing well, we can't love people very well. See, all of this is directed towards love. Love is the central centerpiece of the Christian life. There's other important things too, but it's the centerpiece. It's the one thing that if we don't do that this well, then nothing else really matters, right? If we do this well, there's still other things we have to do, and there's more to life than just love, but love is the center of everything, okay? So why do you think uh, our, our relational circuits go off? What turns them off? Crap? Oh, it's stress. You said stuff. Crap is good, too, if you want to be blunt. Stress turns them off? Yeah. Bad time in worship. Yeah. Sometimes they can go off at church, right? Right. Yep. Right. Maybe you didn't like the song, or maybe you brought some stuff in from outside, and you're sitting here, and you just can't engage, right? Yeah. Sometimes it can be the way people treat us. Yeah. Did you have a comment? Yeah, she said when we're too busy and we're doing too much and we just, need, we just need to recharge. We're just tired. Really what it is, we've just worn ourselves out. A lot of times our relational circuits will go off not because of some big thing. It's because we're so tired that 
our brain basically tries to shut us down and make us take a nap or make us get away and make us rest for our own health. God's designed that into us, interestingly. So, but most of the time I would say that when our relational circuits go off, it usually has to do with a big emotion or two. One or more big emotions. As a matter of fact, we even have kind of a limit that's called our capacity where we can handle the emotion, whether it's fear or sadness or shame or disgust or anger. We can handle it to this intensity, but once we cross over that intensity, boom, we're out, we're done. Our brain's off. And we need to do one of these things, right? Um, so we've practiced on, on getting our brain, how to get our brain, how to notice when our brain's gone off, our relational circuits have gone off, and how to get them back on. But how do we keep them from going off in the first place? And we do that by building our emotional resilience. Emotional resilience means if it takes this much shame to turn me off, if I'm growing a year from now, it should take this much before I stop being relational. And the year after, it takes this much shame before I stop being relational. It doesn't matter where we are in the scale as long as we're moving in the right direction. That's what resilience is. Okay, next slide. Okay, then you can go to the next. So we're gonna talk about the emotions. There are six emotions that are hardwired into our brain. These are instantaneous emotions. We don't have control over these emotions. You can't not feel them, they're too fast. They're, they're emotions that just happen. I think I've mentioned them before, but we've never really explained them. But our brain has dedicated circuitry for each one of these six, okay? So if you look, there's some weird ones up there. Despair, shame, sadness, anger, fear, disgust. Okay, we're gonna explain what each one of those is. So we, what this does is actually help you understand and kind of separate. A lot of times we're feeling more than one and you learn to separate it and realize I'm feeling, what I was feeling when my relational circuits went off was a big combination of sadness and hopeless despair, the despair. Notice that joy is not here. Joy is not an emotion, or it's not just an emotion. It involves emotions, but it's much bigger, okay? And we'll see that in a sec. Um, joy, again, is our relational enjoyment of each other. It's our happiness to be together. It's nonverbal, though. You see it by someone's face just lighting up, not by their words, necessarily. I feel joy when I can tell from your face that I'm special to you. And our brain was meant to run off of joy. Churches should be very high joy environments. Our faces should be lighting up on each other when we come together. And that actually fills our relational gas tank, okay? So let's take a look at each of these emotions. Fear you see up there on the right. It's what we feel, all these emotions we feel in our bodies, by the way, okay? And it's what we feel in our bodies when we detect that there's some sort of a threat and that we want to try to get away. Sadness is some form of loss, always comes from loss. It can be big loss, like you lose a good friend, right? A loved one 
dies. Or it can be little loss. It could be like, for example, when the Blue Parrot shut down in Louisville. We've been going to the Blue Parrot for, for 30 years. And then I drove by that building and it wasn't there and I felt this, oh, that's sadness. So it's important too that we recognize the little, um, when we feel it little, a lot of times we think, oh, that's nothing. Why? No, I was sad. I was in the car with my family. I turned to my, my kids and I said, kids, I'm really sad right now. And they said, why, Dad? And I said, because the Blue Parrot isn't open anymore and we have so many memories of going there and picking up a tub of their homemade spaghetti and their sausages. We never ate there for some reason. Bringing it home and eating it together. And my kids just joined me in my sadness. But it was, it was a small sadness, right? But it's still sadness. Anger. Anger is very close to fear, but anger is when there's a threat that you, instead of running away, you want to stop. You want to stand there. You want to go towards and stop it. That's what anger does. Put a boundary. That's what anger wants to do. Um, so right brain anger, this is, these are all right brain emotions, so they're instantaneous. It's, it's our response to a threat that we cannot get away from. You know, like a lion in the house, we're running away, right? But there's other threats, boom. Lindsay was saying that in the fires, there was a small fire that started down below her neighborhood. There were no public services to help with that fire, so one of the farmers or people who lived down there had a, had a water truck, and he ran to that water, and he's putting it out, and there's some anger there. We don't think of anger in that sense, but he is putting a boundary on this fire and saying, you're not going, as long as I'm here, you're not going by me. We need to put boundaries on each other sometimes. When someone's treating me in a way that does not look like the kingdom of God, I can say, hey, wait, let's take a timer here, time, time out here. I'm not gonna let you talk to me that way. I think you're a better person, but let's take a breather. There's some anger in that, but it's healthy anger. Um, and then disgust, it means that something is not life-giving. Disgust can be something gross, like you drink the milk in the morning and, it, and it's rotten and you spit it out of your mouth, that's gross. But it can also be a gross thing you see another person do. Like when you see someone treating another person in a really horrible way, that's disgust as well. And then shame and despair are the other two. We're gonna, those, are, those two emotions are particularly important, so we're going to spend some specific time on them in another slide. Shame and despair, okay? We'll look at those in a moment. So again, all of these emotions are instantaneous emotions. We don't have control over them, okay? And uh, we don't get into them by thinking. Now, there's some other emotions. We'd call those left-brain emotions that we get into by thinking. It's the difference between fear and anxiety, Okay, fear is a right brain emotion. It's the instantaneous fear you feel in your body when you, your, your brain scans and sees a threat. Okay, anxiety on the other hand is me when we turn off the light in my bed and I lay in my pillow and I start thinking, oh, how am I gonna pay that bill? Oh, I can't believe, why did we, why did we get in that car accident? Do I need to pull, and you start going like this and this, and pretty soon the anxiety. That's not fear, that's anxiety because I'm getting into it thinking, okay? I'm talking about the big emotions that just come on us 
that are faster than our own, own willpower, faster than our, than our conscious thought even. Um, okay, let's go to the next slide. So if we look at our emotional life when we are infants, it looks quite a bit like this. We're born this way, okay? But hopefully, joy is there in the middle of those six emotions, and, and joy is growing. You remember joy climbing Joy Mountain? Like the, the baby, the mother sees the, the baby, and the mother's face lights up, and the baby sees that, and the baby's face lights up, and mother and baby jo- climb Joy Mountain. Then the baby gets tired and breaks off eye contact. Mother gives the baby some space. The baby kind of calms down. That means it's, she's quieting. The baby is resting. And then probably five seconds later, boom, baby's back, and mom and baby are going up Joy Mountain. Okay? As the mom and baby do that, that yellow joy center is getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Okay? Mommy and baby are gr- growing a joy center. I am happy to be with you, mommy. I'm happy to be with you, my ch- precious child, and going back and forth, okay? So babies, hopefully, your, your joy center is there, and hopefully it's growing. However, when a baby experiences emotion, they're stuck there. When a baby has a dirty diaper, and the mom doesn't know it, and they feel bad, and they start feeling uncomfortable, maybe they feel disgust, and they cry, they can't really get out of that emotion. Or if, if, or if the baby, something hurts the baby, like they catch, catch their arm on something and they, and they cry and they're sad, they need, again, a mother to, get, to look at the baby and go, oh, did you just hurt your little hand? Oh, let me kiss that. I am so sorry. Oh. When mother does that, she actually enters into the baby's sadness and helps the baby come back to joy. Every time mother does that, she's actually building nerve bundles between the sad emotion or whatever emotion it is and their joy center, okay? Babies need mom and dad to pull them from their big emotion back into into joy. Babies, as they get a little bit bigger, they start having a lot of despair because there's a lot of things they cannot do and they get frustrated to have mom and dad that goes, oh, that's so frustrating, oh, I'm so sorry, you're so frustrated. Well, come here, let me help you. And, and, and you're entering into their emotional space, but, but, the, the, but the parent is staying okay. I can, I can feel a little bit of your emotion, but I can bring you back into joy. I'm so happy to be with you in this, this frustrating situation, okay? So let's go to the next slide. So over time, and depending on our parents, and caregivers, we learn to stay relational in some of these motions. You get lots, see the nerve bundles there between a couple of these emotions? Those are motions where mom and dad also have their brain well-wired because they can enter into those emotions. This one's, for example, fear and sadness. So when the baby was afraid, mother can go in and say, oh, I'm, oh, I'm so sorry you're afraid. Here, let's look, it's okay, I think, I think that's just a dog barking across the street, but you're gonna be okay, you're with me. If you have 10, 20, 30, 100 of those kinds of interactions around fear, they have a very good link between their fear center and their joy center. Same with sadness. That baby is then able to go into fear and come out themselves and stay relational, or into sadness and stay relational. They'll look to mommy, they'll look to daddy, 
or even when they're own, oh, when they get a little older and, they're, and, and they get into fear, they can actually talk themselves in, back into joy. Oh, that's really scary, but I'm going to be okay. You'll hear them actually repeating things mom and dad have said to them, but they're actually learning how to, how to uh, regulate their own emotions. Most of us, though, some of these emotions are disconnected because our parents never had them connected themselves. Or they're weakly connected. So if I, as a father, don't have one, like I didn't have shame very well connected. I didn't know how to be shame, experience shame and be joyful at the same time. That seemed impossible to me. So my, my, I can't give that to my kids. You can't give someone one of these skills by teaching that. You have to actually possess it yourself and you actually have to go into these emotions with your kids. That presupposes I'm able to do that. If I'm not able to go into the, to shame and stay relational, then I can't teach my kids that. Make sense? And so these missing holes here, they're called holes in our, our maturity skill set. So we're talking a lot about maturity in, this, in our time together. One of the skills we have um, for, and one of the goals we have for our discipleship is to be able to return to joy from all six of the, these big emotions. What that does is that, that allow, allow, bumps up our emotional resilience a lot. So it takes a lot more for our relational circuits to go off. Any questions so far? I know there's a lot of new material. Yes? There are positive notions. Happiness and love are all mostly tied into joy, different aspects of joy, although happiness is not joy. We can be happy but not joyful because it's not relational. So these do seem like negative emotions. We, we, we don't say they're negative emotions. We say they're negative-sounding emotions. But here's the interesting thing. When you get all six of those connected, okay, we're on the next slide. You see how all six are connected? That's the goal we have and we have emotional resilience, then these negative feeling emotions actually are relationship builders. When you and I, work, if we're working together and we get angry with each other at something and we handle it relationally and we respect each other in it and we repair it well, guess what happens to our hesed, our love, our bond, goes up. These six negative-sounding emotions are key to making our bonding to each other deepen. Our bonding doesn't deepen just by being joyful and happy all the time together. It deepens when we're in fear and when we're in sadness together. When we bear each other's burdens. This is what bearing each other's burdens are. Good question. Any other questions? Feel free to raise your hands, by the way. Yes. That's exactly why I didn't talk to you about this when we first started meeting, because you have to talk about joy first. Kind of like you said, you want to start building joy, and then you want to talk about emotional resilience, because emotional resilience needs to have your joy center growing. His question was, it seems like joy is the big connector, like it's the thing that, that helps connect all the things. And I said, that's, that's why we're, we're, we, uh, we focus on joy skills prim- first, 
I just started speaking Spanish for some reason. I'm bilingual, so I'll go into Spanish. That's why we start with joy first. Question. Yep. And churches need to be places where we do replicate that. Maybe not in the same intensity of a battlefield, but it needs to be a place where we go into our emotions together and we love each other in our emotions. And when we see that another person maybe doesn't have one of these emotions, doesn't have much resilience, we know to help them in a way that's very kind and loving. And we never shame anyone for that. Again, that's, that's an example of loving, loving like Jesus loves. So, um, what happens though is when we don't have these emotions connected, and we go into the emotions, that means our resilience is pretty low, and we go into these emotions, and we become non-relational. So not being non-relational in different emotions looks different. Like in sadness, most of us, if we're non-relational and we feel sad, we want to go back into the bedroom, close the door, and cry. Because you don't cry in front of other people. Because probably we were told that as a kid. That's wiring that needs to be undone. And that can be undone. I was told that as a kid. My sadness circuitry wasn't very well wired by my parents. They didn't know how to handle sadness. So when I was sad as a kid, they didn't know how to handle it, and I was on my own. And that did not get connected. However, fear did. My parents were not very fearful. When I was afraid, they could be there with me. And so I can recover from fear fairly well, but not sadness, and not shame. So part of what we do is this kind of work. We talk about this. So, we be, so when we get stuck in an emotion and we don't have the recovery as, adult, as adults, we go non-relational and our identity dismembers, meaning we stop acting like ourselves. So in anger, for example, I had a boss who was a good boss. He liked me. He treated me well. But when he got angry, he was a crazy person. He was a different person. And people, some people even like make that part of their identity. They'll, they'll even tell you, you don't, know, you don't want to see me when I'm angry and you don't want to get me angry because you won't like me as an angry person. Basically what they're saying is their anger circuit is not connected to their joy center because they, they should be the exact same person. Jesus was this, got angry and he was the same person he always was. He was still Jesus. He never lost himself. He never went non-relational, but he definitely got angry. And we need to learn that too. So, if we, if we have these uh, emotions connected to our joy center, they build our relational bonding. However, if they don't, aren't connected, when we go into these emotions, they tend to hurt our relationships. Okay? So that's why this is so important. If we want to love like Jesus loved. So this is a goal from our maturity, again, is to stay relational in all six of the big emotions and to be growing our resilience in that. So it takes more and more to kind of blow us up. That's what emotional resilience looks like. The good news is that we can work on, on fixing these connections that we weren't given by our parents and our siblings and our growing up community. But we have to do the work. 
It's work. Imagine if, for example, every high schooler that graduated and went through the program here, the youth youth group and Fishy and club, Imagine if every 18-year-old that graduated and went to college from First Perez, or wait, this is Grace Commons, I still call it First Perez, if they could return to joy from all six of the big emotions. You do that for a couple years, a couple decades, you've just changed the face of our country. You've just changed Boulder County, you've just changed Colorado. So this is something we need to be teaching our our high schoolers as well, as well as the adults. We all need to do it. We have to start with ourselves, though. That's what my wife and I did. We've been working on these six big emotions uh, for quite a while. Um, So these pathways, again, they're actually nerve bundles we grow by some of this resilience work we do together. And they must develop between the brain and each of these six emotions. So if you see up there, it's talking now about um, emotional resilience. So the goal goal of discipleship is emotional resilience because we see this in Jesus' life. Over and over again, he was put into emotionally intense situations and he stayed himself. He was Jesus. He He didn't become a crazy man or he didn't shut down. He was still himself and he stayed relational. Okay? Um... So what I want to do now is talk about two emotions that kind of deserve some special credit, special information, attention from us. So if you go to the next slide, we're going to discuss the lovely emotion of shame. Isn't that just a fun emotion? Doesn't everybody want to talk about shame right now? Staying joyful in shame is one of the most difficult ones to master. Shame means I'm not happy to be with you. Shame is really anti-joy. Shame is when my face reads on your face that that you're not happy to be with me. Just like joy is when when my brain reads, and this reads it quickly, in a sixth of a second, my brain can tell if you're happy to be with me. But shame is the opposite of that. I can tell you're not happy to be with me, or I can tell that I have lowered your, your joy. Okay? And it's absolutely crucial crucial in order to grow as disciples of Jesus and in our character and in our emotional resilience to be able to handle this character, to grow in our, specifically in our ability to handle shame and stay relational. If we can't return to joy from shame, then we're really going to struggle building our character. Our discipleship will will really struggle because shame recovery is key because we, our character doesn't really change without a little bit of shame. Now, if you've read the book I wrote, The Other Half of Church, you know there's a healthy shame and there's a toxic shame. We should never, ever accept toxic shame. Toxic shame is some form of me saying you are bad and leaving you there. Where sh- uh, healthy shame is me saying, hey, I don't think you're acting like yourself. Let me remind you who we are. Both of those, if you could connect a brain scan machine to me and you said those to me, you would see a a spike in my shame circuitry, right? The ability to stay relational. It's not that we don't feel shame. 
it's that we can feel shame and stay relational, is key to grow our, growing our character and maturing, okay? You know, we talk about the, lately a lot in the last few years about the issue with racism. And uh, I was talking to Dr. Julia Moore. She's an African-American woman who is, studies racial issues and reconciliation at the University of North Carolina in Charlotte. And we were talking about this, and she says, I, I feel shame all the time, or often, with white people. Like, they're just not happy to be with me. And I said, well, give me an example so I can kind of understand what you're saying. And she says, well, I took, I took a ki- some kids on a, uh, it was like a field trip doing something, and we're on the way back, they were, we were all hungry, so we stopped at a, at a fast food restaurant. And we all got in line, and I was last in line because I was going to pay for all the students. And she was watching each one order, and the cashier's face was lighting up, and then when she stepped to pay, the first person's face just went like that. Now, this is just face, facial. The person treated her the same, same words, but she could tell, for some reason, this person is not happy to be with me. So a lot of these emotions go deep in the most difficult areas of our lives and also the difficult dysfunctions of our country. And to be able to even bring racial healing when we can't handle shame is going to be a very, very tall task. And so I've been talking to Dr. Julia saying, if you can build some relational resilience in some of these workshops you do first, and then take them into some of these hard stories we have to share about, specifically with the Presbyterian Church, where the Presbyterian Church was actually involved in North Carolina in lynchings. And she tells these stories. But then people would go into shame, and then they would, if they didn't have shame recovery, they would just kind of shut down, right? And so we're kind of showing how, how to make these things work better, because she was frustrated. Um, handling shame is key in ministry because it's key for character change because we really don't change much without a little bit of shame but if I can't I can't help you in your shame if I can't stay relational myself I'll, I'll, I'll either abandon you or I will give you toxic shame and tell you you're a bad person Not, neither of those will help you what you need is a reminder of who we really are in this kind of situation Any questions? Okay. Um, So, in the people you work with, the people in your groups, if you work with any of the ministries here at at, uh, Grace Commons, you are going to run into shame. Things are gonna happen in your small groups where someone feels shame, and our ability to, to go there with that person and be jo- happy to be with them in their shame and happy to accompany them with them and help, help, help them become relational again. And a lot of times they just need to see it. So if you have pretty good shame recovery, God may have you go into a shameful situation that he will actually architect so that you can show the people how to do it. God isn't interested in our comfort that much. He's interested in helping us grow to be more like his son. An interesting thing, as you grow in resilience in these emotions, God's going to push you into more stressful situations because he knows you can handle it now. Because he's not in the business of keeping us comfortable. He's in the business of making us grow. So how we handle situations in small groups where shame comes up is very important. Okay, And it's also the biggest opportunity to do some real change, life change.
Okay, let's go to hopeless despair, another wonderful thing we all love talking about. Next slide. So this is, hopeless despair is not existential despair, meaning, well, life is meaningless, I'm hopeless. It's, it's very more simple. It's just this, it's the sense that this is too big for me. I don't have the resources or the time or the skills or the energy or the money. Like if I told Alan outside, Alan, could you come over here and lift up the front of my car off the ground two feet so I can get under and do something? And you had a brain scan on him, his, his, his despair circuit would go off, meaning I can't, that's too, I can't do that, it's too big for me. So it's, it's a lot simpler than you think, it's not existential despair, it's just, this, I, I can't do this, I don't have the resources, I don't know how to do it. So, Oftentimes, we have despair in the biggest problems of our life. And a lot of times, hopeless despair gets mixed with the other emotions. So when, when a loved one dies, that's great sadness, right? But it's also hopeless despair. What can we do about that? It's a, uh, they're gone. I can't do anything. Sometimes people get, think they're stuck in sadness, but they actually have hopeless despair is what's sinking them, Okay? And becoming aware of that when you're facing hopeless despair. Um, the thought that when you think to yourself, this is going to never change. Most of us have relationships right now or problems or health pro issues or job issues. And we think, I just I have no idea how this is ever going to change. That's hopeless despair. Over time, as you build your resilience in hopeless despair, it actually becomes one of the most tender of, motion, of the emotions of the six. Because oftentimes when you can stay relational and you're in a problem that's too big for you and you connect with Jesus, you're going to sense from him some form of Jesus saying, I know, this is too big for you. But don't worry, because I'm with you. You're not the only one here. And if we're doing ministry, you better be used to getting into shame and hopeless despair. Ministry, by, de by definition, will put you in hopeless de despair because we're, we're handling lots of stuff coming up that it just seems too big. I don't know how to change this. I don't know how to heal this. I don't know how to help this person. I was uh, going out to breakfast at the village coffee shop here with a friend of mine. He has a really difficult marriage. And we sat down and I asked him how things are going. He started going into an, an argument or an issue that he was having with his wife and some really cruel things she said to him. And I've been hearing this for 20 years. It really hasn't gotten much better over the years. And as he did settle this, I, all of a sudden I felt myself disconnecting from my friend and going into my thoughts and thinking, I don't know what to say. I've never seen any, any change in his life. I've never been able to help him. I can't do anything. And I felt like I was going into this hole and I felt like there was this weight on my shoulders and it's not in my stomach. And I was no longer even listening to my friend. And then all of a sudden, I realized, because we were working on this kind of stuff, and I realized, I'm stuck. I'm stuck in despair right now. My friend's still talking, but I'm not hearing a word he's saying. And I said, Jesus, I don't know what to do here. Can you help me? And I sense Jesus saying, I don't want you to fix his problems. 
I just want you to be there for him and listen to him. That's all I ask from you. All this bigger stuff, put it on my shoulders. I can carry it. And as soon as I heard that from Jesus, it's like, boom, I was back in my body and I was listening to my friend again. And I was just sharing his pain. Okay. That's what's called a hopeless despair story. It's called a full brain hopeless despair story. The story I just told you there, how long do you think that take? Two minutes? Three minutes maybe? If you can actually feel that, who here, when I was telling the story, could kind of feel the hopeless despair when I got stuck in it. And when I told you my, my connection with Jesus and how Jesus helped me and, and, and tuned to me in that, and then I came back to my body, who could kind of feel that, that ability to come back? So what happened when you can feel that, it means you just grew, grew nerve bundles from your hopeless despair center to your joy center. Because the story I told you is called a full brain story. It's designed to grow our nerve bundles and make us and give us emotional resilience. Pretty cool, huh? These are one of the scales, these stories. Yes, question. Thank you. So this woman said that her house was burnt. It wasn't burnt down, but it was burnt. And she was just feeling tremendous hopeless despair. And she said that her, her home group came over to their house and they loved them and connected with them and were strong for them. And she said that made all the difference from them being able to come back out of hopeless despair and not get stuck there. Thank you. So what you have there is the beginnings also of a very good hopeless despair full brain story. And you can tell that story to other people and it will help them. There's a couple things you want to add to this full brain story to make them more effective. Number one is when you talk about being hopeless, you need to put, you want a hopeless expression on your face. That's one of the hardest things of the story. So when you say, and I felt so hopeless about my home, if your face goes into hopeless despair, my, my brain will track you because my, my brain more than any other thing is looking at your face and your eyes. And you will bring me into hopeless despair and then you'll tell me your story how your friends supported you and you'll pull me back out into joy. And guess what? You've just grown some nerve bundles in my brain. So if you do a couple things, if you make sure you show that on your face as you tell it and tell me how the hopeless despair felt in your body. Like for me, I felt like a weight on my chest and I felt a knot in my stomach. So maybe you can relive it and think, okay, how did that feel? Oh, that felt like, like an ache in my chest or whatever it felt like for you. Because I, I, my brain, it follows facial expressions and what your body feels like and I'll go into that same thing. And then show how you became, became relational in that emotion. Sometimes God helped you, like in mine, Jesus helped me and sometimes other people help you. It doesn't matter, either way and you'll grow those nerve bundles. These are called a full brain story. In churches, I believe we should be telling these stories all the, all the time about all six of the big emotions. If I were preaching a sermon here, I'd try to put two or three of those in it without you even knowing it. I can say them without you even knowing they're a full brain story. And little by little, the whole congregation gets its brain built up. 
and our emotional resilience goes up. Pretty weird stuff, huh? But interesting. The reason hopeless despair is important also is because Jesus will put us in hopeless despair all the time. He has, he has no qualms about putting us in hopeless despair. If you look at the disciples, uh, go ahead and here you got a couple fish and a couple pieces of bread. Okay, go feed these 5,000 people. If we had brain scan equipment, what would we have seen? Hopeless despair, boing, spikes. What are, you t- what are you talking about? We can't do that. Did it bug Jesus? Did he explain it first so they didn't go into hopeless despair? Nope. And he's going to do the same with us. He's going to tell you to go do something. You're going to go do it. And this is not working out at all. This is a complete failure. And Jesus said, oh, don't worry. I'm with you. I know what I'm doing. Just trust me. So get used to hopeless despair. It's very important if we're going to change the world that we can handle hopeless despair. Question? Okay. We will not last in ministry very long if we don't know how to handle hopeless despair. So that's why this is important. So when you ever get a chance, one of those situations where you think, I can't, I can't change this. I have no idea what to do here, and I, don't, I can't change this. This is too big for me. The key phrase is, this is just too big for me. I don't know what to do. I don't, know, this is, I don't have the resources. Realize, okay, there's some hopeless despair going on. So, the, uh, I told you earlier that I had my relational circuits go off for about a week and I couldn't get them back on. So we went to uh, Argentina, my wife's from Argentina, for Christmas and we were there two and a half weeks. But my Argentine sister and brother-in-law are, sister-in-law and brother-in-law are going through really, really tough thing and their daughter too, really heavy, heavy things like crisis, relational crisis. We were there for two and a half weeks and we're carrying this load the whole time. And then I got back to the United States. I tra- traveled to Santa Barbara because I had some stuff to do at Westmont. Some, I'm on a board there. And I was with two friends. And both of those friends are in really, really difficult situations that I have no idea how they're going to handle them. And so I'm slowly starting to feel this weight And then I got back here, and last weekend my wife and I drove to Costco to do some shopping, and then we made the unwise choice, instead of driving back 36 into Boulder, we drove up McCaslin. And I was unprepared for what I was going to see as I went up that hill, the devastation. We were in Argentina when the fires happened, and I exceeded my, I'm pretty good at hopeless despair, I've been practicing it. But I, this on top of this on top of this, and then I saw those houses burnt down, and I crossed my capacity, and my brain shut off. And I could not get it back on, and I didn't have, I had a hard time feeling my body. I couldn't really connect with Jesus in a way that felt real. And it took me about a week, and it, it, first of all, it took a couple friends of attuning to me. I started explaining all this. I didn't even know what to explain. I didn't know it was causing it either. I know now, because I can explain to it. So I explained to them, and they attuned to me. And they were with me, and it got me about half the way back, and then I was able to go into some silent time and then some type prayer with, with God. And God basically said, you exceeded your capacity in hopeless despair, and, and it devastated you seeing those houses burnt down. And then I heard him say, 
But if you look around right now, I was in my house at the time in Boulder. If you look around right now, everything that's around you and everything you own is just as flammable as all of those houses. And the only thing that isn't is me and the rock that I've set you on, which is my son. No flame is able to touch that ever. So never forget that. And that'll help you keep your feet on the ground. And as soon as I heard that, I was back. So to me, some people helped me halfway back, and then I needed to interact with God, and then I, was, then I was back again. And I could start feeling my body again. I could start feeling his presence. And so that's an example. Sometimes I even have pretty well-developed helpless despair, but even I exceeded my limit because it was just one thing on top of the other. And you'll find that happening in your life. Okay, next slide. So for five minutes, um, get into some groups of two or three or four or whatever, and look at the six big emotions and figure out what you think to your best of ability, and you'll, you'll grow in your understanding. What are the ones you're strongest in? Meaning you, stay, you can go into those pretty big emotions and stay relational, stay yourself. So pick your two strongest ones, and then pick your two ones that you most need to work on. What are the two emotions that you most often go non-relational? You know, when you go non-relational, that's when either we shut down or maybe we blow up. It can be aggressive. Maybe it's when we throw things or get mad or drop an F-bomb. Or it might be when we just kind of go comatose or we can't function or we're foggy and we can't think. There's all sorts of ways. It looks differently, you know, getting stuck in these emotions. So turn to a group of people around you and just share what your two strongest connected relationships to joy are and what you think are the two you need to to do your work on. And we'll uh, give you five minutes. Oh, thank you very much. Oh, I'm glad, I'm glad. Okay, are there any, as you're trying to look at this, look at a part of your brain that you can't see with your eyes, but just try to see which of those centers is connected and which is not very well connected, are there any questions about that? Anything come up that you, you need some input on? Yes? I'm not really sure I'm glad you introduced me to hopeless despair. <laughs> He says, I'm not very glad that you introduced me to hopeless despair. You know what we got from Princeton Hopeless Over? The evening news. Quit watching it. That is too. Evening news is kind of designed to put you into two things, into fear. It's designed to get you into the back of your brain, which is the fear stuff, and hopeless because you can't, we, most of us can't do anything about it, right? So you're right. But it's good to know it. It's better to know it and be able to name it, because that's the first step to being able to, to grow your resilience. So. Larry, will you turn the mic on? For any of you who weren't able to come this morning, if you watched our service online and you wanted to get a rock, the basket of the rocks is out there. And if you didn't watch the service, get a rock and go home and watch the service. And then you'll know what the rock represents. But I just thought it was fun that they're here and you're here. Maybe you weren't here 
morning. So pick up a rock, and then you can watch our service. Okay, there I am. So I had wondered if I would do a little Q&A with Michael after, um, and I have some questions that might take us on into midnight, so I don't know uh, <laughs> if you could do this with us. But um, What we can say first is if you do need to get and go, feel free to get up and go. If you have something, it's not going to hurt our feelings, and then that way there's no, there's no pressure. There's no shame, right? Good. We're all good here. That's good. So, you know, this is all really new material, probably for most of us. Yep. And depending on whether or not you've read the book or where you're at in this engagement, it may be harder to sort of digest this or even be excited about receiving the stuff that seems contrary to what discipleship really is. Mm -hmm. Let's get into scripture, right? Yeah. And we'll pattern that, our lives. That's important too. Yes. But. So maybe say something about that. I mean, what is the role of the left brain and the study and the being familiar with scripture? in addition to some of this stuff that we're learning? Well, again, the left brain is our conscious brain. It's our ability to absorb truth, have solutions, uh, to tell stories. It's verbal. And uh, so like having, for example, having good doctrine, right? That's like we're b believing the right things about who God is, about who Jesus is, about who we are, about who the devil is, uh, about what, a, what life looks like, what is the life that, that that will thrive on this earth, and what's a life that's not going to work according to the Bible? All that's really important. If we don't, if we're believing wrong things, it's going to really put us into the ditch. But what we know now from how God designed us is that our character doesn't change much by believing the right things. Believing the right things actually helps us clean up the messes after our our undeveloped character does things, and we go off, and I hurt you because I said some stupid thing without thinking it. Then I realize I'm supposed to be patient, and I go back to you and ask your forgiveness. But the beliefs don't change our character, our instantaneous character. That's changed in another way by this kind of stuff we're doing here, if that makes sense. And what is the role of one another in that process that is so key? Well, a lot of, this, a lot of things that's been missing out of Christianity over the last 300 years are, is an actual sense of training our relational selves to love like Jesus loved. Okay? It's highly relational, so you can't do it all on your own. It includes interacting with your community and your people, and it includes also learning how to interact with God in a way that's truthful. For example, what we did today, you can't learn, you can't connect these emotions and grow your resilience by yourself. I need you to tell me a story. If I'm weak in shame, I need you to tell me a story of what it looks like to go into shame and to stay relational. My brain will pattern that and it will grow, okay? I can't do that on my own. I need other people to help me. So here's a leading question. How did Jesus learn these things? Well, Jesus had a very good mother. And he also had a connection with our Heavenly Father that most of us didn't experience at that age. And so he also had a real community with him. And he learned things, okay? But, you know, at an early age, it was very close, it was very obvious from Scripture that he knew that he was the Son of God. It wasn't a mystery to him. He knew who his father was. You know, when he stayed behind in Luke, at, when they went to the, the temple and he stayed behind and his parents got like a day's drive away and they realized he wasn't with them and they had to go back and search for him for days. Jesus knew who his father was and he was so natural, naturally wanting to be in his in his father's presence, that he was there asking questions in the temple. 
So that's something most of us didn't have, but he grew up real fast. And I think the leading part was, what's the role of the Holy Spirit in all of this? And what I'm assuming is that Jesus had the teacher, the Holy Spirit, also guiding him, teaching him, leading him. Would you agree? Yeah, so the Holy Spirit is the thing that comes alongside and helps us in everything. There's nothing we do that we don't need the Holy Spirit, right? Um, but some examples, like in this, this type of work, you may look at those six emotions and go, I have no clue which ones I'm strong or which, I don't even know what some of them even feel like. And you can start praying and say, God, I pray that you would sort this out and have your Holy Spirit start to point out to me um, some of these emotions and that you'd start making sense of it for me and where you want me to do my work. The Holy Spirit all the times will bring things into my life and pop it up and I'm go, oh, so you want me to work there. As a matter of fact, the story of hopeless despair I shared with you where I went over my capacity when I saw the houses that were burnt down on McAslin, I very much felt the Holy Spirit saying, I'm taking you here into this deep hopeless despair because this is an area I need to grow in you because I'm going to need that from you in the future from where I'm taking you. That's not from me. That's the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit's the, I mean, he's taking our hand and walking with us through everything. However, the Holy Spirit is not going to do this work for you. He's giving, uh, given us this work to do, okay? He's given us the work to be disciples. Jesus tell, told his disciples to go make disciples. That's work we do. Train ourselves to be godly. Teach ourselves in each other how to live in God's kingdom on this earth. That's our part, but that doesn't mean we do it on our own. We have help from the Holy Spirit. But he won't do that for us. He won't mature us, because that's not his job. He's given that to us. So on the flip side, when we start talking about hopeless despair, and where many of us, I think, feel lately that we can't recover from one tragedy before the next one comes, and we're already depleted, right, because we've been living through pandemic now for a prolonged season. So we don't even have reserves um, and it's hard to even imagine helping others when we feel like we have nothing to give. But what might the role of the enemy be in all of this? Because with hopeless despair, I think that disconnects us, right, from mm -hmm. being relational with the Lord it can. and others. It can. And we become really in a dark place. Mm -hmm. I mean, does the enemy have a role in that with us? Well, the enemy wants to, enemy loves shame. More than any other emotion, he'll say you're a bad person. But he won't offer you anything to do with it any way out, any path out. So any kind of, it's called condemnation. So when the Bible says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, if you're feeling the toxic shame, which is condemnation, you know that's not from God. And, and Satan wants us to live in that because that's the thing that will dominate our brain and we won't be able to sense God's presence, okay? Um, some of the work we do, it's in one of the chapters in the book, is actually building our, our resistance to condemnation. A lot of times we don't realize that's condemnation that's from Satan. We think it's just true about me. I'm just a bad person. Because maybe we heard that a lot growing up. Maybe I, maybe I said that to myself a lot. Or maybe I heard my parents or my siblings say that to me. Or a coach. Or a grandparent. And I took that in as that's just me. The enemy's wise and he knows he can condemn me with those words. And I won't even know it's from him. So we, part of the training we do is we have some condemnation training. Let's go into very mild condemnation, and then your community comes back and you say, there is no condemnation in Jesus Christ for those who are in Jesus Christ. So if you read in the book, there's even some ways we can train around that. So it's key 
to, the, the more we stay relational in the big motions, the more sometimes we'll have a connection with another person who can pull us out and speak truth to us. And a lot of times we can't do that on our own. We need another person in flesh. So great. Okay, that's probably enough for tonight. Will you uh, pray to close us? And yes, we'll be on our way. let's pray. Father, we thank you that uh, just for your magnificent design of us and how you poured your love and beauty and creativity into us, how you rejoiced over us as you were creating us. And I thank you that you, your fingerprints are all over, all over the design of our bodies. And, uh, and we see that you designed us to love. And, uh, and we pray for that. Um, specifically today, we pray for these big emotions, Lord, and that you would start to sort them out for us so that we could name them. And I pray you'd show us uh, which ones you want us to focus our work on to get more resilient in so that we keep acting like a, a, a child of yours and we don't act, don't forget who we are and start acting in a way that's not loving. And uh, I pray that you would surround each one of us with people who are stronger in the motions that we are weak in. And that you bring also people to us that are weak in the motions where we were strong and that we can strengthen each other in this beautiful body that you call the church. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.